All right, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. So we continue our study through this gospel. Matthew chapter 10. This chapter is the second major discourse of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Matthew has five major discourses. They mirror the five books of the law, the Torah, and the Old Testament. And uh, each one has a kind of theme or a focus. And so the first one was the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. That focused on discipleship. That was his discipleship discourse. This one in chapter 10 is the second discourse, and it is his mission discourse. It covers key things we need to know about the mission that Jesus sends us on. So, what we're going to see here is Jesus calling and commissioning the 12 apostles. They were the first that he sent out, and there are going to be a few things in this passage that are kind of apostle-specific, right? Like a few things that he had them do, he's not meaning for us to copy, like excluding Gentiles and Samaritans. Uh, That was redemptively historical uh, for that moment. But there is much in this passage, we would be mistaken if we did not see, there was a lot in this passage that is for us. We know this because in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, there is a similar record of him calling and commissioning the twelve, and then right after that in Luke 10, He calls and commissions 72 unnamed disciples to go on the exact same mission. So mission starts with the 12, but it expands to others. And then we see it from the 12 to the 72. And then we saw this last week. Matthew's gospel concludes with the great commission where Jesus sends the whole church out. So the testimony of the New Testament is Jesus sends all of his disciples on mission. Jesus sends all his disciples on mission to make, take his message, to take his power, to take his cause out into the world. He sends all of us, not just evangelists, not just preachers, not just missionaries, not just community group leaders, not socially gifted people only, not those with high IQ or high EQ, but it is all of us sent on mission. We are a sent people. And part of the way God intends to add to the numbers of those being saved, part of the way God intends to build His church is to use us to reach the lost in this community. So our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. The title of our sermon is Sent Out. Sent Out. And I want to invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy and authoritative word. And he, being Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, 
but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers. Cast out demons. You received without pain. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. May the Lord bless both the preaching and the believing of his word now. So many of you know, Jenny and I have six children. Joshua, Adelaide, Emma, Lily, Caleb, Madeline. Six awesome kids. Each with a birth story. And on their birthdays, we like to recount their birth stories and kind of relive how the Lord brought them into this world. And so they're familiar stories to each of us. And yet our family would all agree there is one birth story among all the birth stories. There's one in our family that rises above the rest. And that's Adelaide's birth story. It was a unique experience. I don't think I've shared this in a sermon before, um, but Adelaide was born on a floor in the hospital hallway. So not a room, not on a bed, not even in a tub or in a home, but on the floor in the hospital hallway. And it happened like this. Jenny had labored with our son Joshua, our firstborn, for 22 hours. And God bless her. And so when Adelaide was coming, um, we thought we had plenty of time to collect our things, drop Joshua off at a friend's house, and take the 30-minute drive to the hospital that we had to do. We were so wrong. So there were indicators that something was off as we went along. But really, it wasn't until we reached the hospital that everything just started to fall to pieces. Uh, Of course, we got to the hospital. Jenny had been in intense pain in the car, and so we were hurrying to get inside. And so I'm gathering bags and everything that we have. And I don't know why we had so much, but we had multiple bags. I come around to the van, and I say, are you ready? Are you ready? And Jenny turns around, and she's got a sandal in her hand. And she says, I can't find my sandal. And then she takes her, the one sandal she had found, and she takes it, and she just chucks it <laughs> out into the parking garage. And I remember having this moment where I was kind of like, okay, you start going to the hospital. I'll find your sandal. I'll go get the chuck sandal, and I'll catch up with you. So bag in hand, I'm fine. Okay, find the sandal. I go get the other sandal. I run back over to Jenny, who's still in the parking garage, making her way 
to the hospital doors, right? The elevator to go to the hospital. And, but this is where I know something is truly wrong because I find my wife on all fours crawling <laughs> through the parking garage. Now, this is only our second kid. So, you know, after six kids, I've got a little bit more experience. I feel like this is only our second. So I'm looking at this. I'm thinking, you know, we've only done one before. That didn't happen. I'm not sure this is good. <laughs> but, you know, as the husband, I want to be very careful what I say or, you know, so I want to say, are you okay? But of course, that's a stupid question because she's in labor. And so I'm just kind of like, ah. <laughs> And so Jenny's crawling to the elevator, and I'm kind of like, ah, you know. And so we get to the elevator, and she crawls into the elevator, and I push the button, and we go down to the main floor, and ding, and the door is open, and there is a doctor, a family pediatrician. So she looks at Jenny, and she says, are you guys okay? And I say, well, we're, she's having a baby. And then, oh, my goodness. So we get Jenny out, and a nurse runs over and brings a wheelchair. And so we're trying to get Jenny into the wheelchair to sit down. And, and the whole time she's saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And then we just, we're like, you just got to sit, and we'll take you up to the, your room, and you just got to sit down. And, and then she just yells out, I can't do this. I feel the baby coming out. So we're like, okay, well, get, well, okay, get off of the chair then and get back down on the floor. And, and so then we have her on the floor and all these people are starting to come and say, you know, what is going on? What is happening? And, and so I'm like, okay, I, hold on. I got to get the midwife on the phone and get the midwife down here. So I call the midwife and I'm leaving her a message. Oh, so we're down in the hallway in front of the parking garage and my wife is delivering the baby on the floor. If you could come downstairs, that would be really helpful to us right now. And... So I leave that message and I hang up. Now this is a great point. So I hang up. All these people are starting to rush over to Jenny. All these nurses. Are, and this nurse runs by and she goes, Hey mister, quick, call 911. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in the hospital. Like, aren't you guys equipped for this? Like, isn't there just like a big red button you hit and then like a flood of emergency services comes and helps? And so I make my way back over to Jenny and these nurses have, have wonderfully contra you know, held up some uh, sheets to kind of make her this little room in the hallway where she's got some privacy. And so I get back behind into this room and I get down by behind my wife and I'm like, okay, I, I think we're having this baby here. And it's just me and my wife and there's a nurse there and then there's a, the family doctor. No midwife, no baby one. And the family doctor is freaking out. <laughs> she's breathing heavier than Ginny is. She's shaking all over. And now she's the one saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. So listen, Ginny does all the work in labor, right? That's why it's called labor. She's doing all this. So, you know, I, what, I do nothing. I get, I get sandals that get chucked. Like, that's all I do, right? <laughs> But there was, there was something in me in that moment that said, I have to do something for my wife right here and now. So I looked that doctor in the face and I said, ma'am, you have got to calm down. You are gonna be okay and you are gonna deliver this baby. And she said, okay. And then a minute later, Jenny gave a mighty shove, and the Lord brought beautiful little Adelaide into the world. On the floor, in the hospital hallway.
I love that story because we all lived through it and it, can't, it worked out okay in the end. We love kids. Children are a gift from the Lord. And they're a gift because God gives them. Only God can give life. Only God can animate a soul. But isn't it a wonderful privilege and responsibility as parents that we get to play a part in that process of bringing a person into existence? And I share all this because there's a similarity here to how God builds His church. We can't convert anybody. We can't make anyone turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. We can't impart spiritual life to a single dead soul. Only God can do that, right? Only God can do that. Only He can raise the dead. Only God can cause someone to be born again. But what a wonderful and incredible privilege and responsibility we have as Christians that God has us play a part in that process. That God would use as a means of adding to His church those who are being saved, that He would use us. That He would birth someone into eternal life through our witness. Matthew 10 is all about God sending His disciples on mission with the gospel, ready to do good works as His means of adding to the church, as His means of reaping a great harvest. God uses us to reach those who are not following Jesus yet. And what I I hope we can walk away from this text today with is, is an awareness that just like Jesus sends the twelve, Jesus has sent us. That we have been sent out And God intends to use us to play a part in bringing new life into other people. Now having said that, before we even begin to look at what it means to live a sent life, to play a part in this mission, we need to back up and realize the only reason we can talk about being sent by Jesus is because Jesus was sent to us. In redemption history, there really is only one mission. The one God the Father sent God the Son on. Jesus was sent to seek and save the lost. Jesus was sent to live the life we could not live, to die the death we could not die, or that we deserve to die, and to be raised from the dead so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He did all that, and that is the one true mission. It is the mission that we proclaim through the gospel of Jesus Christ that God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, so that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. That is the one true mission. And so before we even get into our text about being sent on mission, let me just proclaim this mission. If you do not know Jesus Christ, I am here to tell you today, Jesus came for you. It's incredible news. God sent His Son, the Son of God, for you. Isn't that amazing to think about? God sent His Son for you, and not only sent His Son for you, but sent His Son to die for you, to die for your sins. Because He wants to be in relationship with you, because He wants to give you the gift of eternal life, because He wants to give you life and purpose and hope. 
And so my, my invitation extended to you from Jesus today is, will you believe in Jesus? Will you turn from your sins, receive him as your savior? He will give you life. For all the rest of us, that's why we're here. We don't do church as a, as a kind of social activity. We don't do church because we think that's what makes us good people. We know we're not good people outside of Jesus Christ. So we're not here because that. we're here because we have been regenerated by Jesus Christ. And he now lives in us and lives through us. There's really only one true mission, that of God the Father sending Christ his Son. And yet those Jesus saves, Jesus sends back out. He saves us out of the harvest, and then he sends us back in to work the harvest. And so what I want us to see today, what I want us to look at today in this text, are five characteristics of a sent life. Five characteristics of a sent life. And the first one I think is just so encouraging. It's just that Jesus sends ordinary people. Jesus sends ordinary people. I think it's something what we should get out of verses 2 and 3. In the list of the 12 that Jesus sent. Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas. Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. There's a lot we don't know about these guys. We know some things about a few of them, but not much about most of them. But here's what we do know. These were ordinary guys. These are just ordinary guys. Most of them were hardworking, blue-collar fishermen. There are no professors here. There's no scholars. There's no political leaders. There's no elite entrepreneurs. Elon Musk would not make the list. This is just a group of redeemed, ordinary people. And this should be an encouragement to us, because who are we? Just a group of redeemed, ordinary people. Our world likes to tell us on little posters in our elementary schools, you are a unique snowflake. There's no one like you in the world. You're so special. You can be whatever you want to be. I have some bad news. <laughs> you can't be whatever you want to be. And you're just ordinary. Now, don't get me wrong, ordinary is not a bad thing. You're made in the image of God. It's beautiful and majestic. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's ordinary. God's kingdom is not built on special people. It's built on ordinary people. So if you are here today and you just feel like, you know what, I just feel like an ordinary guy... Maybe I feel like a weak guy. I just want you to know, you're exactly the kind of person God wants to use. He uses ordinary people to do his extraordinary work. You don't have to be spectacular. 
You don't have to be super gifted, super smart, super savvy, or super social. And yet, we still get it in our heads. We think, you know what? God just won't use me, or maybe we think God can't use me, because I'm just so ordinary. I'm just so weak. And if you feel that way, I just want to impress again how you are exactly the kind of person Jesus wants to use. Because you may think, well, you know what, Jace, you don't understand how bad my past is, how much sin I've got in my past. Well, if that's you, let me say that's also me. So welcome to the club. But let me also introduce you to Matthew, the tax collector, one who betrayed God and God's people and swindled them out of their money. Or maybe you think, yeah, but I'm so judgmental, Jace, I don't even like people. So how could God use me? Well, let me introduce you in the list to Simon the Zealot, who was insurrectionist and didn't mind killing people. Or maybe you object saying, Jesus, I'm so proud. How could God ever use me? Well, I'd like you to meet James and John. They thought they were righteous enough to sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus himself. Or maybe you think, Jason, no, you don't get it. I'm just so sinful. I just sin all the time. Well, let me introduce you to the first of them, Simon, who's called Peter, who did the work of Satan and denied Jesus three times. God delights in using ordinary people. And I love what 2 Corinthians 3.7 says about this. 2 Corinthians 3.7, Paul says, We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. We've got this treasure in these ordinary, plain jars that everyone has. Jars of clay, not valuable, just plain. Why? Why is this the case? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The point is, God uses ordinary people and he delights to, so that when people look at us, they don't think, man, you're so smart, or you're so good looking, or you're so social, or you're so friendly, that I want to be a Christian so I can be like you. No, the plan is, they look at you and they say, ooh, in spite of all you got going on... You have this incredible testimony of grace. And you talk about this God who sounds so beautiful and so amazing. He's the treasure I want. It shows the surpassing power belongs to God. So Jesus sends the ordinary. That's the first characteristic of the sent life. The second is this. Jesus sends us with his authority. Jesus sends ordinary people, but he sends, with, he sends us with his own authority. Look again at verse 1. And he, being Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So here we're seeing Jesus passing on to the twelve, these twelve ordinary men, but he's passing on to them his own authority. So why could they cast out spirits and heal diseases? Like we read here and and again down in verse 8. Or or why could they proclaim the kingdom of heaven and expect that some are going to respond and become disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, it's because they were bestowed with Jesus' own authority. This is good news for ordinary people. That God wants to give us something of his own authority. 
This word for authority that Jesus uses here is an, is an interesting one in the original language, uh, the original Greek. It doesn't just mean the right to do something, but it means the right and the ability to do something. So it's an impartation of not only the right to do these things, but something of the ability to do them as well. There's an effectiveness that comes with it. And so I kind of think about it like this. Like if my daughter, who is my, my third child, if she goes and tells the other kids, you know, it's time to come in, it's time for dinner. They may or may not listen to her, right? But if I bestow upon Emma my own authority, and I say, go tell the kids it's time for dinner, and Dad says to come in. Well, that's like an upgrade for Emma in effectiveness, right? Like, because now they listen to her. And so I think in our passage, what we're seeing here is Jesus is commissioning the 12, and we should say he's commissioned the apostles with unique authority. Jesus, Jesus is commissioning them to have unique authority as his witnesses and to establish the church, right? So we still believe Jesus does miracles in our day. We still believe he gives gifts, he gives healings. We, we're still called to resist the devil in many ways like them, and yet uniquely they carried his authority. And so it's, it's not apples to apples here. Nonetheless... It is good to note that this same word of authority is used in Matthew 28 when Jesus declares, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore. So he goes giving us in this authority, with this authority, to do what? To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So if you feel weak and ordinary in trying to do the mission of making Jesus Christ known, be encouraged, you do not go in your own strength. You go, like Emma, with the authority of your Father in heaven. And there is an effectiveness to that. We can be so timid in sharing the gospel. What if, you know, I offend them? Or, or what if they reject me? Or what if I don't say it quite right? Or what if I, I forget an important part? Or, or what if I'm just not as winsome as I can be? And I would just say, be released. You go in the authority of Jesus Christ. You should do the best that you can, but it's not really in you that the work is done. It's through you, the authority of Jesus working. So our job is faithfulness. We go in the authority of Jesus Christ. We go sent in His authority. This brings us to the third characteristic of a sent life. Jesus sends us to proclaim the gospel. So He sends ordinary people with His own authority for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. Look with me now at verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what we see here is that the mission is advanced first and foremost through the proclamation of a message, an announcement of good news. Now, at this point in redemption history, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't been resurrected from the dead yet. So the good news was limited. It was a limited announcement to the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they went proclaiming the good news, that the king, the Messiah, had come in Jesus. That's all they had at this point. But later, they would preach the fullness of the gospel. That's what we see in the Acts and the epistles. They would come with that message, that proclamation, that Jesus had come not just to teach and perform miracles, but to, in fact, live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die in our place so that we can be saved. That is the message that they proclaimed. 
And that is what we are sent to proclaim, a message that is simple, direct, and compelling. In fact, I love that about what Jesus commissioned them with. Go and say that the kingdom of heaven is hand. Right, there's a lot more to be said about that, but really the central message is simple, direct, and compelling. And that's what we're commissioned to do as well. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 1 that he was eager to preach the gospel, eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. So there is only one way for people to be saved. It is to hear the word of the gospel. How can they believe if they have not heard? How can they hear if they have not been sent? And so we must go and preach the good news. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. Now here I I just want to address something. You've perhaps heard that old adage attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah, it's got a long shelf life. You know why? Because it's tweetable. That's really it, right? It's short, it's memorable, makes a point. It's tweetable, but it's actually terrible. So if you're writing it down like, ooh, that's really good, no, no, scratch it out. Like, oh, no, no, that's really bad. It's terrible because you cannot preach the gospel without words. The gospel is words. There's an attractiveness to the idea that we have to do good works. Yes, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the gospel itself is a declaration of what Jesus has done. It is an announcement of his finished saving work. So to say, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, is like saying, tell me your phone number, if necessary, use digits. Well, there is no phone number apart from digits, and there is no gospel apart from words. So we are sent first and foremost to preach the gospel, not feed the hungry or house the homeless. And I want you to understand this really clearly. Acts of kindness apart from the gospel only make people more comfortable on their way to hell. Acts of kindness apart from the gospel only make people more comfortable on their way to hell. That's why we go committed to preaching the gospel. And that's why the partners that we partner with are committed to preaching the gospel. But that does not mean acts of kindness are worthless does not mean that we do not also go and do acts of kindness. In the New Testament, there is never a separation of gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. There's never a separation between gospel words and gospel deeds. They always go hand in hand, and we see it right here in our passage. So that leads to our fourth characteristic. Jesus sends us to serve the suffering. To serve the suffering. Look at verse 8. follows right up on proclaiming the kingdom. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. I think this is important, this is instructive for us, particularly for us, conservative evangelicals. Here's why. We have it in our mindset that to really affect change, to really spread the gospel, we need to interact with scholars, we need to interact with cultural elites, we need to be publishing books, we need to get the word out there and influence the culture. And there is a place for all that. There's nothing wrong with all that. But that is not the kind of people the disciples were sent to. 
Jesus' kingdom is upside down, right? And the apostles were sent to the diseased, the dying, the destitute, and the demonized. In other words, they were sent to give special attention to the suffering. Because Jesus, because the gospel is a message of love to those in need, healing to the broken. And so that's who we go to. Jesus sent them out to proclaim the gospel and to show the love of God through acts of mercy and acts of kindness and acts of care. That's how Jesus sent the 12, and that's how Jesus sends us. So people like to try to make it an either-or, right? Like one side says they're activists for the cause of justice and life and wholeness and shalom and flourishing in the world, and the other says, I'm not going to be distracted by all that. That's like trying to rearrange furniture on the sinking Titanic. I'm not going to do that. I am working to rescue people from hell. And evangelicals argue back and forth all the time. And I just want to say, do we have to choose? Can it just be both? I think it can just be both. We should work to relieve physical suffering and spiritual suffering. We should strive for both. I love how John Piper led his church in thinking about this. He'd say, let's care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. And then he preached a message where he said this, in every social issue, from abortion to alcoholism, from AIDS to unemployment, from hunger to homelessness, let's give the help that we would like to receive if it were us, the great commandment, love your neighbor the way you would And at that, I mean, at every moment in that love, let us also feel an even greater urgency to pray and speak and work to rescue people from everlasting suffering through the gospel of Jesus Christ. His point is, is we can do both. Love reckons with the reality of suffering in this life and with the worse reality of suffering in the life to come. So let's think about this, Covenant of Grace Church. We have to go committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we also have to go to serve the suffering. And we can't do everything about the suffering in our community, but we can do something. Each one of us can do something. So if you're not already serving the needs of the suffering in some way, and many of you are, you're giving your life in foster care and adoption, and you're giving your life in other ways and serving it. So, you know, I'm not adding more burdens to all of you. But for many of us who need to do more, who want to do more, who hear the call of Christ to do more, let me give you two ways to think about how you can step into this. One, just think about unbelievers all around you that you know who might be suffering and think about ways to serve them. A neighbor, a coworker, someone from your kid's school. Who do you know who's suffering and you can offer to go and serve them somehow? But then second, I want to ask you to consider serving at a ministry in this town that's already serving the needy. We've got a number of good ones like Haven of Rest, Akron Pregnancy Services, Youth for Christ, Rahab Ministries, now, we spent part of our, our, our sabbatical serving at a number of these ministries in town as a family, and it was such a huge blessing for us. And I love each of these ministries because they're committed to both relieving physical suffering and preaching the gospel for the relief of eternal suffering. And so why not just partner with the good works that are happening here? And I've said this before, and, and, but I was, I'm going to say it again. If you are a teenager 
or if you're raising children going towards the teen years, don't think that you have to get saturated in all kinds of extracurricular activities like playing sports and all these different things. You can serve together as a family. And teenagers, this is an honest evaluation. I don't have anybody in mind, but if you stink at sports, quit. (laughs) Just stop, play it for fun sometimes, and start serving. You don't have to live how every other teenager in America lives. You can let Christ chart a different path for you. You know, I know it's hard to fit it into the schedule, but if you cut some things out of the schedule, then it's got a place. So how can we start serving the suffering in our community even as we are committed to proclaiming the gospel? Let's be considerate of that. And then the fifth and final thing that we want to think about, characteristic of a sent life here, is Jesus sends us to work where God is working. Jesus sends us to work where God is working. This is a principle I think we can draw out of verses 11 through 15, where we read, 11 through 15, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if someone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So, one thing we see here is some were receptive to the disciples and others were not. And they were to focus on those who were receptive, who were open, and they were to move on from places where there was not a receptation. And this is an applicable principle for us as well. As we live a sent life, we are to look for a receptivity and work in that field with the Lord, join the Lord's work there, and not, not bother with, not be worried about fields where the Lord is not presently working. Okay, this is the idea of joining God where He is working. And this is actually how Jesus operated in life. This is how he ran his ministry. He knew his father was at work in the world, and so he looked for where the father was at work, and then he worked alongside him. So the key passage here is John 5, verses 19, or 17 and 19. Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So big idea here. God is always at work. God is always at work around us. And so Jesus was on the lookout. Where is the Father at work? I want to join with him in that work. And that's the model he left for us. And that's how he sends the 12. And that's how he sends you and me as well. We are on a lookout for where is the Father at work in and around our lives. And where we see him at work, we join with him there. But that means we have to have an openness, a discernment, a desire to see him at work and join with him. So let me land, let me pull all these kind of characteristics together. Let me try to land us on a practical tool that I want us to use as a church for a season here. Um, Something I've already shared with the community group leaders and that I want to share with you as well that we can use maybe, you know, for a little season here at least uh, to help us think about 
this privilege and responsibility we have to play a part in the process of God saving other people. What are some steps we can take to start joining with God in laboring in the harvest? So here's five steps, a five-step plan. Community group leaders were making fun of me for giving you guys you know, seven steps to a megachurch or something like that. It's not like that. This is just, just five easy, I wanted to give us five easy handles, five easy things to get our minds around. So here it is, it's very simple. Pray, initiate, confess, serve, evangelize. So I'm going to walk through this again and explain each one what I mean. Pray, initiate, confess, serve, evangelize. What do I mean by these? First step, just start praying. Are you praying? Step one, have you stepped into praying that God would send you out as a laborer? Just like we studied last week from Matthew chapter 9. That God would send you out into the field. So are you praying for that first and foremost? That's step one. Step two is, if you're praying for that, begin to initiate with unbelievers around you. Initiate's a vague enough word where it could be, you know, some random person, your hairdresser, um, to someone who's your neighbor who you want to befriend, to a coworker who you want to connect with. Now, initiate some kind of interaction with them where you're trying to establish that relationship. You're trying to see, you know, is there something here that I can work with? Now, I think it was Karen Turner that, yeah, Karen was talking to me about uh, John 4 and Jesus with the woman at the well. Right? And this amazing evangelistic story there, right? And so what was one of the things he did? He just asked her, hey, can I have a cup of water? Now in doing that, right, in doing that, he was breaking through all these social barriers, you know, because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan, and he's a man and she's a woman, so it was a big deal what he did, but it was a simple ask that he had, can I have a cup of water? She starts to initiate. So pray, initiate, and then the third, confess. What do I mean by that? I just mean confess you're a Christian. Sometimes this is the hardest barrier to get over, is just to let your neighbor know or your coworker know that you are a Christian who reads your Bible regularly and goes to church, and just let them know you're a real live Christian in the flesh. Start there. That can be a big, that can be a big one sometimes. Step four. Keep your eyes open for ways to serve them. Opportunities you can come alongside and serve needs that they have. Show them that you love them all the way down. And then fifth, evangelize. Share the gospel, the good news with them. A very simple five-step plan to us thinking about how we can join God in the harvest all around us. And I just wanted to make it like this so that we can be talking with each other. Hey, have you been reaching out to anybody? Well, yeah, kind of. Well, where are you at? What step are you on? Step one, I need to pray. Great, let me pray for you. This is not a measure or condemnation or anything. This is a tool just to help us think about how to be intentional. We've used the phrase before, living with gospel intentionality, right? Sounds great. Gospel intentionality. Yeah, I want to do that. Okay, great. Let's do it. Are you doing it? Yeah, I'm doing it. What does it mean? I don't know. Well, here's a handle on it. We don't have to be dogmatic about it. If you skip a step, oh, I didn't serve them. I just went straight to sharing the gospel. You know, that's a fun. That's, so, that's okay. Um, we're not dogmatic about it, but again, it's just a tool to help us be intentional to start taking steps towards the lost. 
Friends, Matthew 10 gives us a portrait. This is what it looks like to be sent out. It looks like ordinary people receiving Jesus' extraordinary authority to proclaim the gospel, serve the suffering, wherever we find God at work around us. Not everyone will receive our message. In fact, many are not going to. Ascent life is often hard and difficult and frustrating. Next week, we'll look at the persecution that can come with it. But we can still be sure of this. Jesus has seen a vast and plentiful harvest from when he was here all the way up until he returns again. So it's not the lack of reception that's the problem. It's the lack of willingness, willing laborers. We have a privilege and a responsibility to play our part in the saving mission of Jesus Christ, to see people step into eternal life. He uses us to build his church. And friends, the gates of hell cannot stand against the advance of his church. The gospel is unstoppable. The church is advancing. And in that heavenly vision that John has given in Revelation, where there is a great multitude from every tribe and people and language, there are going to be people there on that day from Akron, from Stowe, from Medina, from Wadsworth, from Copley, who we have had the privilege to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Let's labor to that day so that we can rejoice and worship the Lamb with them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, each of us here who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are the recipients of this mission, Lord. We stand downstream. There have been laborers who came and shared the gospel with us and served us in our needs until one day you turned the switch and we believed. We could see the glory your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and we love you and we worship you and and now Lord what an amazing privilege and responsibility that we get to go and do likewise so Lord in all this where we're talking about all these kinds of equippings about how to go and what it looks like and all that stuff Lord still underneath it all in each of our hearts just as you lit the flame of faith when we first believed. I'm praying that you would stir up the evangelistic fire in each of us. Lord, if there's no fire fueling this, if there's no compassion driving it, if there's no sense of of urgency for the loss, if there's no sense of, man, we get to labor in the field just like this is what Christ's license looked like. If there's not that, Lord, then all this will fall flat. And so we we pray for the fire Lord, that burns inside us. God, light us up and send us out to be lights in this world that all men might be drawn to you and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.